The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your word that's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray now you would take these words and apply them to our heart through your spirit at work in us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your grace and mercy at work through your word, through your spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Excuse me one second. I've got to make a few arrangements up here. Some strange things going on. Yeah, sorry about that. So last week, of course, was the first week, uh, first Sunday of Advent. And today is the second, the beginning of the second week of Advent. And for those of you who celebrate Advent in the sense of following along with what the candles mean and why we light them, you know, last week was the week, what's called the Hope Candle, and, and this week is called the Peace Candle. And last week was called the Hope Candle because so much of that first week of Advent is spent looking at uh, the promises of the promised Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, specifically from in relationship to the Old Testament. And of course, this week is the, uh, the hope candle or the peace candle, which is in relationship to the fact that Jesus brings peace. He's the bringer of peace. Not just when he came, he brought peace between his, the, the nation of Israel and Rome. You recall, right, the Israelites, when they first, the disciples, what did they want to do? They wanted to overthrow Rome. That's what their expectation was. So he brought both personal or physical peace between the people of Rome, or at least his disciples and his followers in Rome. And then also he brings personal peace, inner peace. And that's the idea that we, that we have with these candles each week why we've lit, lit them, why we have them up front as a reminder, because they're, again, pointing us to the coming Christ where we'll light that center candle on the last Sunday of Advent. <clears throat> now, you might be wondering, why then, if we're celebrating Advent, are we reading a text from John chapter 12, which, of course, has really nothing to do in a, on the surface with Advent? And I want to answer that question for you. I do have an answer for you, I promise. <laughs> so um, we're reading that text because when you think about Advent, 
and you look at these candles to the right of me, and there are different colors. And you see that every, sun, every Sunday you come in, and if you're at home, you're, you're, you may have these same candles. Three of the candles, though to my eyes they look blue, they should be purple. So we're going to call them purplish blue. How's that? All right? But they're purple. Historically, they're purple. Um, and these are, Karen tells me they're, they're more purplish blue. But, you know, my, my color eyesight doesn't always see, see that. So, but normally, these, these three candles are, blue, are purple. And they point to something for us. <clears throat> and what do I mean by that? There, there are, um, that they, they point to something for us in that these color, the color of purple is the color of Advent. Right? It's a reminder, historically it's a reminder that um, purple was for a king. Right? That's what the robe that you would clothe the king in was, uh, was, was purple. But also, that sa- these same candles point to another connection. They make another connection for us. That is, uh, if you were to um, ever pass by, say, a Catholic church, or maybe you're outside the city and then you're with another church or visiting another church, and they have a, some churches may have a cross. They're usually Catholic churches, sometimes Episcopal or Anglican, may have a cross out front of the church. During, during Holy Week or during the week of Easter or during Lent, what is draped across that cross? What color is that? There's a cloth across it. What color is the cro- that, that cloth? That cloth is also purple. And the point of what, what they're making, what we're trying to make here in the Christian calendar is that just as Advent points to the coming of King Jesus, Lent also shows us that there's a connection between his coming and his death, right? So Advent isn't just about the coming of Jesus, but Advent is pointing us to something, not just his coming, but also the fact of where he has to walk, the road that is ahead of him that will lead us in four months from now to Easter Sunday. Now, I'm going to take a moment here, take a sip of water, and look at my notes because I have no idea where I am. Um, so give me one second to catch up here with myself. So you might, the, the, point, I'm, the point of this is just to tell you, is this is why t- we read this text in John 12, is there is a connection, and I want to show some of that connection as we come into Advent, between Advent and where Jesus is going, is not just his birth. It's going to take us to his death. And that, if you, that, and the point is, if you only celebrate Advent and you only see Advent as from the sentimental, sentimentality of, oh, look at the babies in the manger. But look, where that's going is to his death on the cross. And so this week, I want us to, to focus in a little bit of where Advent is taking us to. Now, you will remember that last week, Joe preached on Matthew 5, 27 through 30. And we're told in that verse that, excuse me, in those verses that that one aspect of Jesus' coming was that to fulfill the law and the prophets. You remember that, right? Joe preached on that last week. The law and all its beauty and all its power has condemned us because we're not able to keep it. We're not able to uphold the law. As James says, whoever keeps the law, but stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Jesus came, is what Joe was showing us, is that Jesus came to fulfill the law because we're powerless to keep it. Today, we're going to look at another reason Jesus gave for his coming, right? And the reason we're looking at these again is the point is to Advent, because I want us to look at last week, this week, and the next two weeks, that Jesus is coming to show us that 
in the scriptures, Jesus gives us his own words for why he came, right? He is, and we're going to look at these passages this week and the next two weeks, Jesus' own words as to why he came. So today we're going to look at another reason Jesus gave for his coming. <clears throat> and as you remember um, in that, sorry, excuse me, I got to find myself again. So we're going to look at just, again, John 12. And John 12 shows us clearly this connection between Jesus' advent and Easter. Now, the section of Scripture we just read is Holy Week. It's the week leading up to Good Friday and to Easter. That's the context of John 12. Jesus has already performed numerous miracles. He's turned water to wine. He's raised Lazarus from the dead already. The Pharisees have already instigated a, a plan to kill Jesus. And Jesus is already in Jerusalem. And, his, and the last, his last Passover meal will happen in a few days. Then Jesus says in John 12 this, John 12, 26. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from the hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What hour is Jesus speaking of? What's he talking about here? You might recall that the Gospel of John has sort of this minor theme running through the first seven, eight chapters, all the way into chapter 12. That, that is that throughout the Gospel, Jesus said on a few occasions that his hour had not yet come. So, you know, you recall the story, Jesus' first miracle in chapter 2, uh, he's at the wedding in Cana. Now, you remember in, in Israelite times, in, the, in Bible times, the, a wedding between two parties was a great celebration. It usually would last upwards of a week. Well, on the third day of this wedding, Jesus' mother comes to him and says, Son, all the wine is gone. And do you remember what Jesus how Jesus responds to her? He says to her, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And then two more times in chapter 7 and 8, Jesus will say the same thing. My hour has not yet come. But then in John 12, in verse 23, Jesus announced quite unexpectedly that his hour has come. It seems like a strange setting for Jesus to announce this. He's in the middle of Passover week celebrations. But then in verse 20, there's this interesting verse in John 12 and verse 20 that reports a strange encounter that sets off the plan of God for Jesus. And there in verse 20 it says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from Bethesda in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus and Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So this is all happening before the section of Scripture we read. Now, I'm not sure why John included this in the Gospel, because we don't know if Jesus ever met with these Greeks who came to see him. Nothing else is said about them in the rest of Scripture. But we know that Jesus' ministry was primarily geared toward a Jewish, Jewish audience. And I think this may simply be John's way of saying 
that Jesus is not just the Messiah of the Jews, but he is the light to the Gentiles as well. Regardless, the arrival of, the Jew, of these Greek people to speak to Jesus puts into motion the plan of God. The hour has arrived for Jesus to go to the cross. Now, David Strain, who's a pastor, says, his hour, Jesus' hour has come, which means that every step of Jesus from Bethlehem to Galilee to Jerusalem has led to Calvary. Every step, every step. We're celebrating, yes, the birth of our Savior. Yes, the birth of the, the God-man. And yet, from December 25th onwards, he, every step he takes is leading him to Calvary. Every step, every decision, every action is leading him to Calvary. Now look, I think Jesus has several things in mind regarding his hour, and that's what we're going to look at today. I want to look at three things his hour encompassed. Specifically, Jesus said that when his hour arrived, the Father would be glorified, judgment would come, and redemption would result. So let's look at each of these briefly this morning. The first thing Jesus says is that his hour has arrived, but his soul is troubled. You see this in verse 26, 27. The Greek word for troubled means revulsion, horror, anxiety, agitation. Does it surprise you that Jesus felt anxious over his impending suffering? The text is saying to us that Jesus was in anguish at the realization that suffering and death was just around the corner for him. Jesus is, of course, fully human, right? We're celebrating the God-man coming, the incarnation, Jesus coming to be born as the God-man. So he, but he is, we forget sometimes, I think, in this season that he's not just God, but he is a human being, fully human, full, having all the same weaknesses we have, of course, but without sin. So Jesus is a fully human man who has real emotions and pain was not something he longed for. Jesus is unlike us, and yet he is like us in many ways. And like us, he recoiled from death and suffering as any sane person would. But notice, church, that even though what lay ahead repulsed him, he willingly desired to glorify the Father through his obedience. Father, glorify your name, Jesus said. How does he glorify the Father? Through his perfect and complete obedience. Do you understand? Jesus goes to the cross, not because, in a sense, he desired it. He longed for the cross. I think that's what John is showing us, is the cross, the, the, the sin that he was going to bear, the punishment that he was going to receive, repulsed him. And yet he goes to the cross because God, that's the plan that has been made and set before him, and he was going to obey that plan to glorify both himself and the Father. That is, Jesus willingly submitted, knowing that his submission would lead to his death, even death on the cross. And you'll see this throughout Scripture, right? Periodically, Paul will say this, that even death on the cross, Hebrews, even death on the cross. The idea here is that they're pointing to his, look, it's death on the cross, because when Jesus knew, and we, we sort of had this idea as well, that the death on the cross was not, an, it was, it, the cross was an instrument of torture, that's what Jesus was repulsed by. It was not a way of, yeah, we're going to execute you, you're going to die. No, we're going to execute you, and you're going to die over hours and days. And then we're going to publicly display that for all to see. That's what repulsed Jesus. Not his love for us, not his passion for us. He goes to the cross, 
He goes and lays down his life so that you and I might have life with him. The point is that Jesus lived his whole life from the manger to the cross in complete and full obedience to the will of God. He did not seek his own comfort or safety. He obeyed the Father fully so that we who are disobedient can have abundant life in him. Look, Jesus fulfilled his mission to redeem humanity. His sacrifice was not in vain because it revealed the immense love and grace and mercy of God for his people. Brothers and sisters, we often chase after earthly glory, craving recognition and validation from others. But this pursuit ultimately leads to emptiness and dissatisfaction with life. So Jesus reminds us that true glory comes from aligning ourselves with God's will and participating in, the, in his grand plan of redemption. When we live our lives for his glory, our lives become in essence a reflection of his love and grace and light to illuminate the world around us. The second thing I want us to see here is that Jesus says regarding his hour is found in verse 31. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Now there are two ideas that Jesus is bringing out here. First, of course, is the judgment of this world. Now look, we know, of course, that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Right, we're clear from that. Right, John 3 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So what does then Jesus mean when he says that now is the time for judgment for this world? I think the best way to answer that question is to look at other places in John where John speaks about this issue. So in John 5, he says, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus is saying that those who trust in Christ will not come into judgment. And the antithesis to this is that if you have not trusted in Christ, then you have come into judgment. The death of Jesus becomes, in a sense, the dividing line between the condemned and the redeemed. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if you can go back and think back to uh, this passage in Luke 2, where Jesus, or, I'm sorry, where Mary and jo Joseph and baby Jesus are on their way down to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for the purification of Mary. And while they go into the temple to offer the sacrifice, they meet this prophet named Simeon. You remember the story? There, Simeon pulls Mary aside and he says this to her. This child, that is Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. This is why Jesus came. His suffering and death caused the division of people basically into two groups, those who follow him and those who do not. The thing is with this is that no one gets to be neutral. No one gets to sit on the, the fence. You have to choose. You have to make a choice. Jesus doesn't give us any other option. You can't be neutral when the God of creation sent his only son in full agreement with the son to die a sacrificial death 
for you and me, for sinful people. Every one of us in this sanctuary belongs to one group or another. Jesus' death means that we must make a choice. Do you stand in faith with him or you stand against him? There can be no mushy middle ground for you and me. Jesus bled and suffered on the cross so that we could be forgiven. His sacrifice was an act of love that shows us how much God cares for you and me. Will you submit to him and follow him or will you resist your savior? You must choose. There's no other choice. You must choose. The arrival of Jesus' hour didn't just initiate the beginnings of judgment for this world, as we saw, but also judgment of the prince of this world. There's, this, of course, is a reference to Satan, uh, who is described in Scripture as the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. But I think the question we need to ask is, in what sense was Satan cast out at the death of Jesus? Because we know that he remains active in this world. The New Testament goes into great detail in how to protect ourselves from Satan. You can think of Ephesians 6 and the call to put on the full armor of God that we may stand against the schemes of the evil one or the schemes of the devil. Look, throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels, Satan tempted Jesus, doing all he could to lead him astray, to lead him off course, that is to destroy Jesus' faith and obedience. But Satan was unsuccessful and was defeated and judged by Jesus at the cross. And at the cross, Paul says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. And then while in Revelation 12, John makes this remarkable statement, he says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now I have come, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser, that is Satan, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. Did you hear what John is saying? They triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb. We triumph over Satan because of what Jesus has done for us when we're united to him in faith. Satan can no longer bring up our sins before the Father because they have been forgiven already in Christ. Satan lacks power and authority because of the obedience and the faith of Christ for us. There are still going to be battles, of course, and struggles against Satan and his minions, but the war is already over. The war is already won. Christ has won the victory, and that is what Jesus' hour has brought for you and me. The last thing I want us to see in this text is that, regarding this hour, is this promise of salvation, which is found in verse 32, or the promise of redemption is found in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus says, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This last statement of Jesus regarding his hour is the fact that he will draw all people to himself. He, of course, means people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And even more specifically, he means all his sheep, all his children will be drawn to him. 
Because at the cross, Jesus secured all those who placed their faith in him. Please do not miss this point. Our standing before God is not dependent on our good works. It's not dependent on our morals. It's not dependent on our virtue. It's not dependent upon how well we pray or how much we study our, the scriptures. Now, of course, don't get me wrong. I'm not encouraging you not to study the scriptures and not to pray. Of course, continue to do those things. They're very important for helping us continue to have a healthy, strong relationship with, with our Savior. But you need to understand, those things don't make our standing with God any better or any different. Because our standing with God, the way God looks at us, the way God sees us is through the lens of Christ, through the eyes of Christ, who has bade him fully and completely. And we, united to faith in him, receive that standing because of Jesus. Our standing lies, our standing before God lies with Jesus and him alone and nothing else. He has secured our full redemption and salvation in his good works on our behalf. He's done the good works for us. We don't have to do good works to please our Father. We do good works out of gratitude for the grace and mercy that we receive from our Father because of Jesus. I think I'm going to close with this. Um, it's a quote from, a long quote from David Strain um, that I think is really good. That sort of ties, I hope, in my mind, it tied everything together. I hope it does for you as well. Look, David Strain says this, Jesus was born and obeyed and died and rose and reigns and his work in securing our salvation can't be defeated, can't be undermined, can't be hindered, can't be stopped. He will save all his people. Every single sinner who trusts in him, no matter how weak and fearful they may be, will be secure forever. Because the baby of Bethlehem became the man of Calvary and shed his blood for them so that they cannot be lost. The same baby we celebrate at Christmas is the same Messiah who went to the cross scorning its shame so that those of us in Christ can be certain, can have surety of our security, of our worth, and of our value before God. And that surety, that certainty, our value isn't dependent on us. It's dependent on Jesus who went to the cross for you and me. Brothers and sisters, this is why Christmas is worth celebrating. This is why Jesus came. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we adore you for the wonder of the gift of your Son, and we celebrate his coming. Thank you for the Savior who brought glory to you through his obedience and doing what we could not do. Help us to remember during this Advent season, not so much the sentimentality or the sentimentality of Christmas, but the hard-won victory of deliverance Jesus brought and wrought for us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.